Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. your crew <laughs> just got the, <laughs> you are doing a great job hey hey what's up it's me it's reed um what what not 50 yet i'm 40 i did it hey i got COVID on my birthday <laughs> thank you thank you very much not 50 yet. I got something to say for the next 10 years. Hey, it's a word on 1 Corinthians 3 from someone who is now 40. Or uh, I promise I'm not going to make being 40 the focal point of everything that I say. <clears throat> but look, I do have to say, um, Abby was asking me before service if I like feel older. And the answer is obviously no. <laughs> but it does sound different to be like I'm 40 like it just sounds different okay I'm not going to do my therapy in front of you um sorry Keeve you're 50 hush voices closed doors nah just get along or another roof stuck in the mud so yes I'm now 40 um I used to be younger and I had younger kids can you believe that uh we lived in a little house 1511 South Lewis Street and living with multiple young children so my, my kids are 17 months apart and then two and a half years after that. So living with multiple young children is kind of a just continuous Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of situation. Every day is just like it's pretty bipolar. Could even be like every half day, every hour, every minute sometimes where it's like one second, it's like ecstatic bliss. Bliss, can you put that picture up? So cute. And the next second, it's just total chaos. <laughs> There's another one. Here's Jack and Graham just being so sweet on the couch together. And then just, I'm going to let you look at this and just figure out what's going on for a second. That's a, that's a diaper. <clears throat> and there's a knife. It's a plastic knife, but boys don't care. It's real to them. And... Graham has been stabbed in the poopy diaper. <clears throat> okay. Children can really, they can really surprise and delight you with the things that they say and think. And then they can also really shock and horrify you with just plain malice. So like a story <clears throat> that I've told about Briggs before is uh, one time we were reading the story of the Garden of Eden and we were hearing about how God told the man and the woman that when they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. And the snake said, no, 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 you won't die. And then they eat the fruit, and guess what happens? They don't die. And Briggs, as a very perceptive, like, eight-year-old, <clears throat> was like, so was, was God lying? And was the serpent telling the truth? And I was like, mm, what do you think? And he's like, well, I don't think that God would lie. Good instincts. Maybe when he said they were going to die, he just meant a different kind of death. You're like, where did, you, where did you get that? 
And then this same child, we actually just found this journal this week. <laughs> I will kill you, Jack. <clears throat> Briggs was practicing his cursive. But look, it's just so prettily and plainly written right there. And there's some kind of a, I don't know what, drawn on the other page. So you can see how these, these rooms at 1511 South Lewis Street, they could, they could host these moments of like odd and penetrating insight, and then they could also just be like crime, scene, crime scenes. And you'd have giggles and songs, and it's so sweet, and then the next minute there's just voices raising and yelling, struggling to be heard over crashing and stomping and breaking. And me, Ever the Enneagram 5 rationalist with my children, ever the idiot would be there trying to like reason with them in the middle of some big fight and they'd just be like swinging fists at each other and I was like, now boys, when we're angry, we don't use our hands, we use our words. <clears throat> and it's like sometimes they just got life, you know? And then other times when they were like, I don't know, jealousy is like flying about toys and whatever else, they didn't get anything. Like they, they just couldn't get anything, nothing that you would call rational at all or anything like that, nothing spiritual certainly. And yet I would be like foolish trying to teach them anyway, which brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter three. Paul, not the fool that I was. So at the end of chapter two, um, Derek's taken chapters one and two, there's, there's this current, there's this undercurrent of like divisiveness and division that's going on. Paul's kind of trying to hold things together. And he's been writing just, just a chapter ago. We're in three now, just in two. He's writing about these spiritual realities, <laughs> whatever in God's mysterious universe those might be. I don't pretend to know. And how he wanted to impart this spiritual wisdom to the Corinthians, like over and against a kind of wisdom that would be merely human, right? A spiritual wisdom as opposed to a merely human one. But then chapter three begins and he kind of throws up his hands and he's like, actually, you know what? You're not ready. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. This is a verse that I remember well from my upbringing because it had this like, kind of aura, this mystery about it. And I had this strange fascination, like what was the solid food? Like what kind of teaching is that? And what's the milk that like they have just kind of been sipping? Um, like if I, I thought, well, that's must be like the rest of the Bible. Like that's what he did pass on. And that's already confusing enough for me. And so is there like, is the milk or is the solid food that he's like wanting the spiritual realities is there like some trippy secret eighth dimension type stuff that you can only say like in hushed voices behind closed doors? And much as Paul would like to give that to you, sorry, you're still of the flesh. You're not spiritual. And so you can't, you can't have it. And I was like, well, what is it? What does it mean to be a spiritual person? Like he's talking about, because I wanted to be a spiritual person. I was church golden boy. Like I, some people wanted to be like the star quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. No, I wanted to be like Charles Spurgeon, like a great preacher or something, which is totally lame. That's <clears throat> what I'm doing now. <laughs> what did it mean to be a spiritual person? Uh, I wanted to get that wisdom, you know? And I imagine that it was, it was like, there were kind of three things. 
One, I was like, well, you got to know stuff. That's what you, you got to read the right books, the right Christian books, the right Bible books, like seminary stuff. They've got the spiritual realities. Probably like watch the right movies, foreign ones likely. Uh, you got to look at art and you got to learn Hebrew and Greek. And if you do that stuff, then you're a spiritual person. Or I thought the second thing was like, well, you got to be somebody who every day does your quiet time. Like you read the Bible and you pray every day, even when you're on vacation, and that is how you become a spiritual person. Or just somebody who like, I grew up in purity culture, if you know anything about that, and it was like you couldn't have any sexual immorality about you. You had to be pure. Um, now, not, not that there's anything wrong, by the way, with knowing stuff, and there's certainly nothing wrong with spiritual practice, like doing quiet times. Definitely nothing wrong with being virtuous when it comes to your sexual behavior, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I don't think, I, I think the reason the Corinthians weren't ready, and maybe the reason why we might not be ready either wasn't really about of a lack of those things. So what was it? Like when Paul said that they were still people of the flesh, what did he mean? He tells us, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Apollos, another teacher, not a bad dude at all. But it's like, it, it, it's the problem, what, what keeps you fleshly and not spiritual, at least here, it's the jealousy, the strife, the quarreling, the bickering. It's the, I follow that guy, you follow this guy, and let's choose up sides, God's on my side kind of mentality. It's the, like, the jealousy of secretly or maybe openly just like wishing that people thought of you the way they think about that other person. This is the kind of thing that Paul is saying makes us not ready for whatever the deeper wisdom is. And this makes some sense to me, especially when I think about this kind of cartoonish uh, illustration of living with my young children at home. But like, how can you possibly be ready to grow in wisdom and to learn when everything is like utter chaos because of jealousy and fighting and not being able to take care of those things like knives and diapers, not much room for wisdom there. Being a spiritual person then, it's not really about having like a PhD in theology or about having outstanding moral conduct. You can be an outstanding moral person. That doesn't mean that you are a spiritual person. I mean, it's about <laughs> grace and peace. The way that Paul is signing his letters. It's about living a life of grace and peace with the folks around you. Not that that is easy. <laughs> Not that that is easy. In fact, it might even actually be a lot harder to live in grace and peace with the folks around you than it is to get like a cool graduate degree from Duke. Kobe, if you're listening, you guys don't even know Jacob Nicholson, sad day. Well, he's going to Duke and he's getting a fancy degree. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Paul says, and he means you and he means us here now at Truman, which is not so hard to imagine, like because you know strife and you know jealousy because you have roommates. Like what about, 
What about when your roommates just won't do their dishes? Not for the seventh time or the 70th time, but like the seven times 70th time. Or what about when the person that you wanted to date started dating someone else? Or what about when the person that you were dating started dating someone else? Or what about academically? When that person, the other person in your class, they like ace the essay and you come away with a C. Or maybe like you want to be ha seen as having a certain position like within this community and somebody else has it. This was my experience when I was freshman, sophomore at CCF. You wanted to be the guy, but somebody else was the guy. Like we know about jealousy or strife. Like what about when you reformed Christian with all of your doctrinal ducks in a row? Like what about when you had your first intense theological discussion with like a liberal Methodist? Or like, what about when your small group discussion turned into predestination and free will? Or what about the first time that you heard that weird kid suggest like, well, I don't know, maybe that story in the Bible didn't happen exactly the way that it says it did. <laughs> Folks, we're in an election year. Do you guys even care about that anymore? I feel like four years ago, I don't know, eight years ago, do you guys care about that it is an election year? Does this matter to you? Yeah. Yes. Raise your hand if it matters to you that this is an election year. <laughs> Hannah is scandalized right now that not every one of you, this is exactly my point happening in real time. Yeah. You guys, like we know, we know about strife over the issues. So Paul says, while there is jealousy and strife among you, mm -mm. and when we are quarreling, bickering, whether in person, social media, about so many things all the time. This shift happens where we care a lot more about being right than we care about like having community and being in peace and grace with the people around us. The Pharisees used to do this thing where they would try to, uh, they would like mock Jesus and they would be like, hey teacher. And then they would ask him a question to see if they could trip him up, prove him wrong, trap him. And one time they did this and they were like, what's the most important commandment? Now's your chance, Jesus. Here it is. Go ahead and name the campaign platform. Name the defining issue. Name the non-negotiable. What's the most important thing? Sabbath, dietary regulations, temple practice, tax policy, military spending, environment, education, Gender politics, which one is the heaviest? And therefore, which one is going to be most effective for bashing my head over the neighbor with it? And Jesus said, no issue. He said, no argument. He said, the most important thing is love. Love for God and love for your neighbor, unless you think that this is a little too hippie, like love and peace and love and peace. Love for your enemy, too. Love for the person that destroyed your life. Whether, or any other person, whether or not you agree with them, or whether they agree with you. Or put it another way, on this thing, on love, on this law, all of the others are hanging. It's foundational. It's the thing upon which everything else has to be built. Imagine a closet. You've got your rod, and you've got your hangers, and love is like the curtain rod. 
And it keeps all of these issues and all of these ideas and doctrines and loves, like it keeps things hanging in a row, ordered as they should be. But you take that away, you take away the rod, and what do you got? Just a freaking pile of clothes on the floor, mildewing. That's what Jesus said. Paul agreed with him, by the way, when he said the one who loves fulfills the law. But I think sometimes we have this thing to reverse the order. And instead of hanging the issues on love, this is the most important thing. This is ordering, like love of neighbor, love of enemy, love of God. This is dictating how I navigate these things, how I hold them, my posture towards other people, have different things. Instead, we reverse it and it goes the other way. And we try to hang love on the issues, like whether or not I have to love God or my neighbor usually with neighbor, but I would challenge you, maybe sometimes you do it with God too. Whether or not I have to love them depends on whether we agree or not. Or like, to be a little more blunt, whether they're like me or not. Whether they treat me the way that I deserve to be treated or not. I don't know, maybe it's worth just taking a second to think, like does, does my love for others or for God, like, does it hang on the doctrines? Does it hang on theology ideas? Does it hang on political platforms? Remember, it's an election year. Does my love for someone hang on the things that they say about me or the things that they do for me? I picture, like, so there's this, there's this building metaphor that we're gonna get into, and it's like a house flipped upside down and you've got like the roof, I don't know, like predestination or some stupid issue like that. It's like jammed into the mud and it's trying to support the weight of like a solid concrete foundation and it's just crumbling because these issues, they cannot hold us together. They can't hold a body of people together, especially a body that God is trying to build into something to do something in the world for him. It can't hold it together, and the heaviest part up here, it's gonna crush the whole thing. Like the whole thing is a disaster when love of God and love of neighbor and enemy, when that is not foundational. Paul says, you're not ready. You're not ready. Like you don't have the foundation in order. You're not ready for whatever other the spiritual realities are. You're not ready for it. And you're like, read, but they're so wrong. Socialism? Are you serious? Like, did you see what they posted about Palestine? Did you see what they posted about Israel? I saw a Joel Osteen book on their shelf. Do you guys even know who that is? Or like, they think homosexuality is okay. Or meat sacrifice to idols or alcohol or Biden or Trump or Taylor or Kanye or Paul or Apollos. You're so wrong but what are all of these people and what are all of these issues are they jesus are they christ crucified i decided among you to know nothing except this right or wrong if this other person is a fellow stone in the temple my christian brother or sister is it worth worth breaking up the family over this I hear you, issue warriors, people who are like, but uh, if those are the hills that you want to join 
or divide or die on, live and die on, that's fine. That might feel very noble for you. And you might even be right. You might be right. Being right is great. Congratulations. You are right. That's not, that's not the right hill. That's not the hill that Christ was crucified on. Hear me. Qualifier. Division, not the same as disagreement. Disagreement is actually really healthy. Issues are important, and it's not that everybody is just right, and it's not that, no, that being wrong is irrelevant. What we think, what we do, that really matters. If, we didn't, if it didn't matter, we wouldn't have the rest of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is going to go on to write a lot about issues and about how to set things straight. Like, Lord knows Paul needs to set them straight. In that world, Corinthian was kind of like a dirty word. Corinthian church wasn't doing much to clean it up. And yet, even with all of these people, like sleeping with their mother-in-laws, mothers-in-law, they get it? I apologize. It's not mother-in-laws, mothers-in-law. Even with that, God's, he, this is the temple. These people are the temple. They are being built on a foundation of Christ crucified, not on a foundation of their own correctness. And so that's the reason why, like, despite all of this other stuff that you're jealous and striving over, you cannot tear down the body of Christ because of your jealousies and your strife. And here's why it matters. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? You all, y'all are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in you. Paul, with God, is trying to build something. And what he's building is a temple. And what do you know about temples? temple for a Jewish person is about presence, which is maybe something that you've heard before. Now quickly, I just want to dispel a common myth if you grew up like I did. Some of you have been told this idea about temple and the presence of God that it's like God's presence used to be in the temple, uh, but now it's, it's like in us, sort of like a genie in the bottle, right? Where the temple was like this bottle that God the genie was held in, but now... God's finally been let out because of Jesus, and the Jewish people now are just sitting around like a very lonely Aladdin, rubbing like an empty brass lamp. Oh, silly Jewish people. Jewish people don't believe that way about the temple, and they never have. From the get-go, at the very dedication of the temple, this is what Solomon said. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. There's some self-awareness here, okay? Or in Isaiah, one of the last things in Isaiah, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is this, what is the place of rest? The whole thing, okay? It's not like genie in the bottle and now like we're all a bunch of bottles, not a genie thing. The whole creation is home to God, not this one building. But for God then to take up rest in a temple, for a God to take up rest in a temple, as when God takes up his rest on the seventh day in this temple of creation that he has just made for six days, I have been told that this is an expression. And it means that when the God comes to rest in the temple, they are now set up and ready to start ruling 
ready to start making things happen, directing things. And so the temple becomes this sort of metaphorical like headquarters. It's a base of operations from which the rule goes out into the world, like the White House, right? The, the president can leave the White House and goes all over the place. But the White House, as the thing, as a symbol, stands for from the place from which governing happens. And in Ezekiel 47, it actually imagines there's this vision, there's this picture of a river that starts flowing out of the temple. And this river is so fresh and so strong, it flows all the way to the Dead Sea. Do you guys know about the Dead Sea? It's like so full of salt. I was actually, Leanne and I were in it a couple of summers ago that like, it holds you up, like the salt content is so high that you just, you just lay back and you like float. It's a really weird feeling. Don't go in if you have like an open cut because it will burn. But the vision is this river comes from the temple, God's rule going out, and all along the banks, life is springing up everywhere and it's so fresh and so strong that the whole Dead Sea is turned into a body of fresh water. It goes out from the temple. The temple is also a place that people came to for prayer, for worship, for thanksgiving, for offerings, for sacrifices, for festivals. In short, this is what that means. This is just like dead, stupid rituals. This is a place where people came to navigate their relationship with God. It was where they came to have some experience of the love and mercy of God. That was what temple was about. And then Paul says, you are God's temple. You are that. You are that. You are the place that where it's going out from. God is going out as a presence into the world to make things the way he wants them to be and make them fresh and make them alive. You are a place where people can navigate their relationship with God, where they can experience the love and mercy of God. When Solomon finished his prayer over the temple when they dedicated it, it says, when all of the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. So here's my question. When the temple that we comprise, you are the temple. When that comes around, like, what is other people's experience of that? Do they feel compelled to worship and to give thanks to God? Like when people come around, do they, around us, do they say God is good and his steadfast love endures forever? Because that doesn't just happen like because I, I went to CCF on Wednesday and Sunday. That's not how that works. You are the temple. You are the presence going out. You can be a place where people experience the love and mercy of God. And some of you might hear me say that we're being built into this temple, this place where other people can experience the love and mercy of God, where they can navigate their relationship with God. And you might think, you might hear me accidentally saying that what you need to do is like go into ministry or be a missionary or something with your life. And that's like how you really do this. You have to say a bunch of churchy things that those are the people, you know, the cool ministers and the preachers who are like being the presence of God in the world. Or maybe that what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about as being temple is really just about being a certain way on Sunday and Wednesday. But I think Paul is writing about each of us and being 
each of us being this temple and building this temple in whatever way in life God has called us to be. He says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Each one. I don't think it's just Paul that's doing the building. He calls himself the master builder. Other people are contributing to this temple. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, Jesus Christ. That is the thing that is done, taken care of, foundational. But you're building upon it. Now, if anyone builds with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. The day will disclose it because it'll be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Each of us is a part of the building and each of us is also one who is building the thing, extending the presence of God wherever we go, whatever we do. You wanna be a lawyer? You wanna be an accountant? Designer? Writer? Mom? Dad? Postman? Leanne's grandpa? Harley, 99 years old, he carried mail. You want to work the front desk at the nursing home? You want to be a funeral director? Man, Leanne's grandma died on Christmas Eve, and I learned what a ministry, a funeral director can be to people who are in grief. All of that, whatever you're going to do, is a way of being the presence in the world as God works toward this ultimate goal of restoring and redeeming everyone and everything. It's not just a matter of somebody who stands up and preaches about the Bible. You can help put the world back together and we need you to help put the world back together in all of these various fields and things that you're going to go into. This is why I love being here at a university as you guys are at this going out point to all the different things that you're going to do. It's all holy, it's all temple. The vision at the end of scripture, there is no more temple. There's no more need for any of that. The presence of God is, it's, it's everywhere. So take care how you build. Take care how you build. Take your calling seriously. If you even know what it is, and maybe you don't, and that's totally okay. But as you, as you go on, man, I was listening to Sufjan. Derek got me an album. And, uh, and there's a song where this line just keeps getting repeated. Are you writing from the heart? Are you writing from the heart? As one who writes, like that strikes me in particular, but whatever you're doing, are you doing it from the heart? And is it true to the foundation upon which it's being built? That is, is the way you're going about being an accountant or being a lawyer or being a designer or being a postman, is that in harmony with the foundation that is Christ crucified? Is it done in self-giving love for the good and healing of the world? I don't care what it is, it can be. Not just for your friends and family, but for strangers, for enemies. I think whatever it is, if it's built on that foundation, in that spirit, it adds to this temple that God is always making everywhere. And don't be fooled by appearances. This will be tempting as you get older. Like you can build a mega church with 5,000 people and that can be made of straw entirely and the fire will burn it up. Or you can faithfully walk the streets of Pontiac, Illinois, delivering mail for 30 years as you raise a family with incredible love and nobody ever sees it except those who showed up at the funeral and that can be precious, precious stones. Each one's work will be tested. And now I'm gonna to speak to you as a 40 year old. 
because you may not even have to wait until the day of judgment for that testing to happen. There is something about this age, I know I sound like an old man, that will make you just test the work all on your own. I had a chat with myself on the morning of my 40th birthday, kid you not, talking to myself out loud, I had COVID. Actually, it was really weird. So in the, in the Dent family, like my siblings, we like improvise a lot of things in song. We're just always start singing to each other. It's weird. Lastly, and she's, it's weird, isn't it? And so I'm like singing, sing-songing to myself about the state of my life at 40 years old. And I'm like, am I doing it right? Do I really care about anything? And it's not like, what are you doing with your life? But is there any life in there to begin with? Is what I'm doing, like coming from the heart, will it mean anything in the end? Does it matter? These are things that approaching middle age will just bring up for you. And Beekner, Frederick Beekner said that your calling, I'm going to help you navigate this a little bit now. And it's going to take you time but I want to help you a little bit now by telling you what Beekner told me, and that is your calling is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's where you're called to build. What is it that you most want to do that also the world most needs to have done? Like maybe you really want to write toothpaste commercials, but the world doesn't necessarily need more of those. And maybe the world desperately needs doctors and leper colonies, but the thought of you doing that only fills you with dread. Neither one is right, okay? So find what you should be building by first honestly asking, what makes you glad? And I don't mean like, well, sitting around like playing Fortnite school, like, what makes you glad? Like really glad, deeply glad. A clue may be to, to think about the things that when you do, like when you're doing them, you find that time kind of starts to blur at the edges. And then what does the world need that you care about? And a clue to this might be thinking about the things that like when you hear about them or when you see them, you react at like a gut level with anger or sadness or like a sense of hurt or injustice that might be a clue for you to what the world's hunger is that you can address. For me, I didn't actually realize this until I had kind of been doing the thing for a little while. There's not, I, don't, I mean, you're, you do well to think on these things and then sometimes you stumble into it. God takes you there and you're like, oh, I'm doing it. But like I realized after I'd been doing this job for, I don't know, some years, I realized that it bothered me that in some people's Christian experience, there was nowhere that they could like poke and prod and ask the questions that they had about God and life and Bible without like being afraid. And, and the world, I think, has a hunger to be able to say what it doesn't know and what it really thinks and then to receive honest responses that are both comforting and challenging. And so for my part, like, I, I love to write, and I love to explore ideas that way, and so here I am, with my gladness, doing exactly what I'm doing right this very second, in a place where people like you are coming into your own, 
for maybe the first time in your life, certainly with plenty of questions, my gladness, the world's hunger, maybe we can build something. That's just me, so what about you? It may take time. It may take trying something and trying something again. It may happen in different ways, in different places. And it's certainly gonna take some honest self-reflection. But think on these questions of your gladness and of the world's hunger and of how to build there on the foundation that is Christ crucified. And then you may get closer to finding out what that part of the temple that is you bringing God's presence out into the world looks like. And the last thing I have to say to you is when you find that, do your best to build well with precious materials. And I don't exactly know what that means, but what I think is the fruit of the Spirit. Build it with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Build it that way and do it together. The temple that we are, that we are together, it's crucial to the good healing that God wants to do in the world. And so we can't be tearing ourselves apart, insisting that my thing is the best thing and your thing is stupid or being right about this is what matters the most. Or that just because someone is wrong doesn't mean that there's not a way for them to be brought along and brought into the whole process, the whole building project. The divisions, the jealousies, the quarrels that we harbor, that harms not just like church gatherings, not just like whatever the attendance is or something like that. Who cares? It harms the witness, the witness to and the embodiment of the presence that God deeply wants to take out into the world. And so now, may we learn to live lives of grace and peace among one another. And may we each know, may you know what you can and what you should build. And may we help one another as we build. And may we build on no other foundation than the self-sacrificing love of Jesus poured out in all of your various fields and majors and endeavors, poured out to overthrow death, defeat sin, and put the world back together. Let's pray. Lord, help us to, uh, <laughs> help us to care, help us to live our lives from the heart, help us to be not afraid as we explore where it is that you have us building this temple. Help us to go together. Help us to be a people who are marked by love, by the love of God. And as we go and do whatever we're doing on this campus, out in the world later, I hope, I really hope, that what we're doing and the way we're doing it might cause people to look at you and to say, yes, thanks be to God. God's steadfast love endures forever.